0: Again, you wonderful, wonderful geeky people and a very special hello to anyone who is tuning in for the first time because they heard me as a guest on the brilliant Apero Time. If this is the first time you have come along geeking with Destination Venus, basically, this is it. This is me, Reggie Rigby, the owner of Destination Venus under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate, And you have joined me for an hour of geeky news, views, reviews, and general stuff. And before we go any further, I really do just want to say a big thank you to Paul for having me on his show. It was eye-opening, actually. As you can probably tell, normally when I record anything for broadcast, uh, I am sitting alone. Back in the old days, pre-pandemic, in the original version of this show, which was then called The Geeks at the Gates, there were many of me, well, us, there was a whole cadre of geeks and we would get together and we would talk about stuff. And it was a great communal social thing. It was, it was actually as close as I got to having a social life for a couple of years, if I'm honest. And then the pandemic happened and we tried doing the thing over Zoom and it really didn't work. And then people started having lives and you know how inconvenient that can be. And suddenly we just couldn't get everyone together in one place at the same time. and so eventually, the gigs at the gates became me ranting at you from the void, and it was really nice actually just to sit across a desk from someone and have a bit of a chat. Uh, if you missed it, I was talking about Thought Bubble, which is coming to Harrogate in a, a, a frighteningly short amount of time now. But I'm not going to talk any more about Thought Bubble here because I'm going to be talking a lot. About Thorbable next week. So we're going to leave that for now. And instead, because there's been a lot of it, we are going to get cracked on with the news. This news really changes everything. Okay, so uh, as you will know, Although the Writers Guild of America strike is now resolved, with the Writers having scored what I'm gonna refer to as a resounding victory, the SAGAFTRA strike, that is the actors in Hollywood, continues. And because we are union strong here on this show, we are therefore not reporting anything that might promote the work of the studios. So I can't talk about American stuff, but I don't care! I really don't, because It's the middle of October, which means it's nearly November. And if it's nearly November, then it's not long until we get some new Doctor Who. And I can talk about that as much as I like. But in fact, I'm going to be rather restrained. And I'm not going to talk about new Doctor Who at all. No, no. For the first time in a very long time, I'm able to talk about old Doctor Who because... After many, many years of Whovians looking at the iPlayer and going, how come there's not any Classic Who on this? To coincide with the 60th anniversary of the greatest science fiction show the world has ever seen, the BBC Godlover is putting almost everything from Classic Who up on the BBC iPlayer. Which means that from... November the 1st, over 800 episodes of classic Doctor Who will be available. So, if you're a young person and you didn't get to see Doctor Who back in the days when it had no budget and possibly the worst special effects ever committed to screen, now you can. And I, for one, cannot wait because there is so much who That I remember from being a kid that I saw once and have never seen again because the BBC haven't repeated it and I can't afford to buy DVDs of everything. Very important. Not everything is there. They are starting all the way back with the first doctor, William Hartnell, and moving all the way forwards to the TV movie from the 90s, in which the seventh doctor as portrayed by Sylvester McCoy, regenerates into the Eighth Doctor, as portrayed by Paul McGann, who was never to be seen on screen again until the 50th anniversary celebrations and Night of the Doctor, which was a very short episode in which Paul McGann, the Eighth Doctor, regenerated into John Hurt, the War Doctor, and... Suddenly, the numbering of Doctor's incarnations stopped making any kind of sense whatsoever. But we're not going to get into that. This is an awesome good news story because suddenly, so much heritage, I'm not even using the word history here, so much heritage is finally easily accessible to everyone. If you are a young person and you, you joined Doctor Who back in 2005, or even since, because Because I'm old, I keep referring to the current run of Doctor Who that started with Christopher Eccleston in 2005. I keep referring to that as new who. And it isn't anymore. 2005 was 18 years ago. There are people walking around who can vote who don't remember the return of Doctor Who, which I think of as something quite recent. This is what happens when you get old. I don't recommend it, but it's better than the alternative. Anyway, that's the good bit. Now, here comes the slightly less than perfect bit, which is not every episode of classic Doctor Who will be available. In some cases, it's because we don't know where the episodes are. There are many, many episodes of Doctor Who from the 1960s in particular that are simply lost because for a while there, the BBC, as a remarkably thrifty organisation, was simply taping over the master tapes. I'm not even kidding. What would happen is the BBC would shoot Doctor Who on video because that was cheap, and then it would broadcast Doctor Who because that was kind of the point. But it didn't occur to anybody that anybody would want to watch Doctor Who more than once. And so after a bit, once copies had been made and sent to the various global TV companies that had bought the rights to show Doctor Who, the original master tapes would then be wiped and recorded over again, which is brilliantly thrifty if what you care about is reusing videotape. and absolutely gut-wrenching if you actually like Doctor Who. I mean, Doctor Who is not the only show this happened to. Uh, It just happens to be the one that I'm mad about at the moment. So what has happened is that some very, very dedicated people with way more time on their hands than I've got have scoured the globe looking for copies that might be held by other broadcasters to to try and reconstruct uh, whole story arcs. But there are still missing episodes, and clearly, because they don't apparently exist anymore, they cannot be put on the iPlayer. But there is one other group of episodes that the BBC will not be making available on the iPlayer. And it would appear that one of the episodes that will be missing is kind of important. There are some episodes of Doctor Who that were written by a guy called Anthony Coburn, who was a BBC staff writer in the early 1960s. One of the episodes of Doctor Who that he penned was called An Unearthly Child. And it was, oh, hang on, the first episode of Doctor Who. And that will not be available on the iPlayer as things stand, and nor will any other episode penned by Anthony Coburn. Why? Well, essentially, because... Anthony Coburn's son is furious with the BBC. I'm not quite sure how the legal rights thing works here. I I would have thought that the BBC contract for staff writers was that if you make it for the BBC, we own it. Apparently not, which is astonishingly enlightened for the 1960s. But there you go. It's the BBC. They are kind of cool. But not that cool, at least not in the eyes of Anthony Coburn's son, Steph Anthony Coburn, who is very angry with the BBC indeed. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story here. Basically, uh, Steph Anthony Coburn believes that the BBC treated his father appallingly badly. And because the rights to the story have reverted to him as the manager of his late father's estate, and because he, at least in part, blames the BBC for the untimely death of his father, He's not minded to play ball. He's gone online and said, basically, yeah, they can suck it. They're not having it. Uh, They've offered me a pittance. I'm not prepared to accept the offer. I don't need the money. Uh, I am here entirely to get revenge on the BBC. If they want these episodes of Doctor Who, they're going to have to pay what I want for them. I'm prepared to not make any money at all. That's not what this is about. I am here simply to penalise the BBC for the way they treated my dad. And uh, let's see how much they want them, shall shall we? Now, he's caused some flack, some considerable flack, I suspect, from Doctor Who fandom. And um, he gloriously doesn't give a monkeys. He's not a fan of Doctor Who. He doesn't give a monkeys about Doctor Who. He doesn't care whether Doctor Who fans get to see these episodes of Doctor Who again. He cares about getting some kind of recompense for the slight and the wrongs that he perceives have been done. And I have to say, Whilst as a Doctor Who fan, I am sad that we're not going to see these episodes. But honestly, as somebody who believes very strongly in creators' rights, I'm thrilled by this. I mean, it's inconvenient from my point of view. I would wish that this was not happening. But I love that the estate of somebody who created something has this much power. I also love that there's been a, a, a con- well, I don't love that there's been a concerted hate campaign against this guy online from Hugh fans. I don't love that. What I love is his reaction, which is, yeah, whatever. And <laughs> honestly, I, there are some nerds who are mo- losing their minds that there's a guy who has something they want and doesn't care what they think. I, I, I adore it. I love it. Uh, I, as I say, I, I wish things were otherwise. I I wish that Steph Anthony Coburn was not this angry. I wish he didn't have reason to be this angry. I don't know whether his anger is justified or not. He certainly feels it is. I, I hope he's gaining some peace and satisfaction from being able to stick his thumb in the eye of the BBC about this. Uh, So those episodes will not be available on the iPlayer. I I really hope, actually genuinely hope, not just because I want to see them, but because I I don't like this kind of conflict. I really hope that some kind of amicable arrangement can be reached here. But it is unusual to see creator rights work in favour of the little guy. And so just from that point of view, I am appreciating this. Ruefully from afar. So that is Doctor Who coming mostly to the BBC iPlayer 1st of November. And not just Who either. Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Adventures and all manner of Whovian themed spin-offs are also coming back to the iPlayer in celebration of 60 years of Doctor Who. Who knows how long they were going to remain there but they're going to be there from the 1st of November. I for one will be diving in and enjoying, I recommend that you do the same. Yes, the special effects are awful. Yes, by modern standards, some of the production values are impossibly low. There's an episode, I think it's in Robot, which is the first Tom Baker adventure, where Unit send a tank to deal with a giant robot, and the tank that is sent is very clearly an action man tank. Because they couldn't afford a tank, a real tank. So they just nipped to the toy store, bought an Action Man tank and pretended it was a real tank. They actually did that in a primetime BBC show in the 1970s. And honestly, if you have grown up with modern TV, with the special effects and stuff that we have now, it's, a, it's an education and I urge you to see it and appreciate it for what it is. I am so excited. I, you may have noticed. I cannot articulate how excited I am for this. But I've now spent nearly a quarter of the show banging on about Doctor Who coming to the iPlayer. Something else must have happened, surely. Well, yeah, something always has. But actually, the next bit of news would have needed the sad Spock version of the news jingle. Because... Oh, it, uh, it's, it's annoying and it's bad. And it's complicated. I'm talking about Scholastic's bigot button. Now, this is an American thing, but it is something that resonates deeply in geek culture, and it's something that I think it's important to keep an eye on, simply because what happens in America inevitably sort of migrates over here. And what is a talking point in America now? Is something that certain people in politics will be banging on about in the UK if it works in America. Now, if you follow international news, you may know that there's something of a thing going on in the US at the moment with books. Specifically, who's allowed to read them? Specifically, books that have mention of things like race and gender, and sexuality in them, and whether these can be allowed in schools. Now, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking, some of you are thinking, well yeah, there shouldn't be books about sexy times in schools, we shouldn't be having like racist stuff in schools, and you may have a point, but those unfortunately are not the books that are getting banned. Uh, We reported last year, maybe the year before at this point, how uh, Mouse... Art Spiegelman's biography of his father and his father's escape from Nazi occupied Poland had been banned in one school district. Many other books, basically any, almost anything that has any kind of gay character or uh, LGBTQIA plus narrative is being yanked from schools. And if you are somebody who is thinking, well, yes, you know, that's that that's for parents to explain to their children. You know, schools shouldn't be forcing the gay agenda down people's throat. Um, Well, no, actually, no, no, no. As an educator, I have to say no. I I I do feel very strongly about this. Kids need to see themselves. And some kids are gay. Some kids are trans. Get over it. It, It's just a fact. No one's making them this. No one is going to read a book. That has a gay character in it and think well that looks like fun maybe i'll be gay that's not how it works and what happens when you ban books is people don't see themselves anymore and then we go back to a time when kids thought they were the only ones and that's when kids kill themselves sorry there's a body count attached to this so I feel very strongly about this. And I've been watching it from afar with something approaching dismay. One of the bright lights in this culture war, and it really is being pushed by a very vocal minority who are very aggressive and who shout very loud, but who really are a minority. Most Americans, according to all the polling, don't care about this. But All you need to be in America is loud and loud and prepared to go and make a fuss at your school board meeting. And they will pull a book. Many books. And there are there are laws now being passed in places like Florida that say if as a librarian or a teacher, you give a book on a list of prescribed books to a kid, you can be prosecuted. So, you know, it's getting scary over there. But a bright light has been, first of all, the efforts of librarians in particular to combat this. Uh, The Brooklyn Public Library is doing a brilliant job. Any teenager in America who has a library card can now check out digital versions, wherever they are in the United States, of any of the books that have been banned by any of the school districts anywhere. I I cannot applaud that loudly, and you can probably hear me from where you're sitting. And one of the great ways that American schools and school districts have been putting actual books in the actual hands of actual kids for decades now has been the Scholastic book fair Scholastic are a brilliant publisher of books for kids and young adults they are a, they've done amazing work over many decades now they are a big company they have a great deal of power and just as individual librarians are stepping up and standing against censorship and saying, No, we will make books available to children. We will not stand for censorship. Scholastic have stood up and said, oh, 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 Scary, scary. Oh, and they've backed down shamefully. I am very angry about this. What scholastic Book Fairs have done is say, OK, we have a range of books that we bring to you, librarians and schools, as part of the scholastic Book Fair. We will come and we will bring this stuff and we will make it available to your kids. But what you can do, if you want, is um, you can opt for a version of what we bring that doesn't have anything controversial in it. And oh, I'm sorry. I I, I, believe it or not, I actually do try not to editorialise on this show too much. But I am appalled, repulsed, and sickened by the cowardice of that stance. Okay, that's not what—that's not what we do as geeks. Okay, we we just don't. Now, just to step back of my soapbox, just for a little bit, and be Reggie reasonable. And put the other side. School Elastic have defended what they've done. They've said, basically, look, this isn't something we're imposing on people. If you are a school in a place where having you know, exposing children to books with what School is referring to as controversial themes, I'm putting that in, in really heavy air quotes, then you can have our book fair come to you. And we won't bring anything that might cause you trouble. And that sounds so reasonable on the face of it, but it isn't. Okay, there's a thing that you don't do when people ban books. What you don't do is capitulate. There are states in America where laws have been passed by bigots in government, and I'm using that term advisedly. Okay, I. I hope if you're new to the show, I'm sorry you've landed on such a political one. Um, If you're not new to the show, I hope you know that I choose my words carefully. I wouldn't be using that word if I wasn't prepared to stand by it. Laws have been passed in some of in some states in America, which actually do legally make it quite difficult to have certain books available in an educational setting. What Scholastic should have done. In the face of that, is say, yeah, do you know what? Fine. We're not coming. We, as a company that is involved in education, will not accept censorship. And we will bring the books. Parents can tell their kids they can't have the books. That's up to parents. We're not interfering in that. But we do not and will not stand for government telling us what kids can and cannot read that is up to teachers and parents and librarians and kids so if a state tries to ban any of our books we will not bring any of our books and then let the court of public opinion sort it out yes that would mean that some kids in some states would not get access to any of the books at all. And that sucks. But a stand has to be taken if this is not going to go any further. And if this is ever going to be rode back. If politicians think they can get away with a thing, and they do get away with a thing, they will not only continue to do the thing, they will go further with that thing. And if that thing is a bad thing, then that's bad, obviously. I think I've made my position on this clear. So I am I am very unhappy with what Schoolastic have done. As an educator who has used Schoolastic a lot in his career, I am really, really appalled that an educational publishing company would be this craven. And this, at least, really is a black and white issue for me. There are very few black and white issues. And actually... Once we lift the bans, then there are conversations, a lot of conversations to be had about which books it is appropriate to put in the hands of which kids. And I'm happy to engage in that debate. There are books that I have told some kids, yeah, maybe don't read that right now. That's not that's not right now. That's not for you. Because as an educator, I knew the kid and I knew the book and I knew the kid's family and I knew the kid's circumstances. And I was able to make a judgment about, yeah, that book, not right now, not for you, because there was something in there, content or something, that would have caused a problem. That's an educator's job. That's what we do. But just because I wouldn't put a particular book into the hands of a particular kid doesn't mean that no kid should have access to that book. That's what libraries are for. Yes, sometimes that means kids are going to get access to books that their parents do not want them to have access to. And I'm sorry, folks, that is not a bad thing. And yes, I am aware the kind of worms that statement can open. But and I'm, I'm not having that discussion now. That isn't time. I, if you want to debate me on it, come and talk to me in the shop. But I genuinely believe that school t- decision here is about the worst decision they could have made in the circumstances. I know that a lot of librarians, a lot of teachers in America, and a lot of writers of books are about as unhappy as I am about it. And so we will watch and we will see. Uh, And you might be thinking, oh, this is American politics. Why is Reggie getting involved in American politics on a show about being a geek? Um, Well, simply because one of the things that I value, one of the things I think is at the core of my geekiness is my belief that everyone should have access to books, to information, to ideas, and that anything that stands in the way of that is bad. And yes, that actually includes ideas that I disapprove or disagree passionately with. and. What's happening in America is an extreme form of what is also happening here. Those same voices that are being currently so successful in America at just getting rid of anything that makes them feel uncomfortable, those voices are here in our schools and our education system. They're not winning at the moment, which is good. But what's happening in America, what's happened with Scholastic in the last week, Shows that they could win, and I think that were they to start to win here, that would be very balik indeed. Oh, well done, Reggie! Pick the week when you might have a load of new listeners to really get on a Donny Downer. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna leave the news there. That's that's nearly half the show taken up with two news stories. I need to talk less, but we'll leave that there, and we will go on to something a little bit. More cheerful. Whew! And breathe. I am just going to throw in, uh, I I would normally do this in the Geek Community Notice Board section, but I'm actually going to throw it in now. Uh, The Brooklyn Public Library, who uh, featured fairly favourably in that rant, I think, uh, have a podcast called Borrowed and Banned which looks at books that have been banned throughout American history. It's very American-centric. It's the Brooklyn Public Library. You would expect that. Uh, But it's a really fascinating look, actually, at what's been banned and why it's been banned over time and what some of the writers whose work has been the subject of book bans think about it. And uh, I I can't recommend it highly enough. It's really, really good. Uh, As you know, I do not have time to do show notes in the way that I once did. But if you just Google um, Brooklyn Public Library borrowed and banned or you just stick borrowed and banned into the podcatcher of your choice, you are bound to find it. And I commend it to you. It's a fascinating, fascinating show. Right. Onwards. Um, I think we should probably talk about something less contentious so we're going to stay with a newsy sort of theme but we're going to have a look at what's going on in okay just before we get into the whole um space news thing uh, a very quick apology uh, due to an error on my part i am now recording the rest of the show whilst at the shop uh, because i'd forgotten that i had to be at the shop on thursday afternoon this week and uh, so i hadn't finished recording the last 27 minutes of the show that means i'm recording in a less than soundproof area shall we say that and also i'm not using my regular mic so if this all sounds different and not as good then well then good because that means my, my engineering skills actually do something if you haven't noticed a difference i've been wasting my time for years anyway Uh, That's that. I will clean everything up as neatly as I can. Uh, But if this whole thing sounds a little bit different for the rest of the show, that is why. Um, And anyway, let's get to the space news because the space news is quite exciting. Um, I think what I'm going to do is go full on Star Trek with this news. Basically, what we've got here is a rogue galaxy that's blowing up stars. I know. It's the plot of a Star Trek episode, isn't it? We've got a rogue galaxy that's blowing up stars. As is always the case, the truth of this story is perhaps a little bit less narratively exciting, but incredibly fascinating nonetheless. Basically, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, and it's nice to hear from Hubble again after all the fuss about the JWST, which is still doing stellar, no pun intended, work. Um, It's nice to hear from from Hubble, which is a venerable old beast at this point, well, well over 30 years old right now, and still doing the work. But anyway, new data from Hubble is showing us that um, high-speed gas, which is being expelled from the galaxy M87, is causing SARS to go nova. And no one quite knows how. So it is entirely possible that either Klingons or Romulans are involved. That's all I'm saying. Basically, A nova happens when uh, a dense star uh, like a white dwarf receives gas from an orbiting star. As the white dwarf's intense gravity squeezes the gas, the gas heats up and explodes. But both stars survive the violence. Over millions of years it is possible for an individual star to go over repeatedly, over and over and over again. Now, recent observations uh, have suggested – I don't think we've got any proof of this yet, I'm not even sure how you'd get proof of this – but recent observations have shown that it is likely that this kind of stellar eruption is responsible for the creation of quite a lot of, if not most, of the, the lithium. That occurs in the universe. Uh, Lithium is an incredibly valuable valuable metal. Uh, You'll know it maybe from lithium iron batteries, um, or possibly, if you're very unfortunate, from the mood stabilizer lithium. So what have they found and what's going on? Well, um, a bunch of of folks, um, a guy called Alec Lessing, who is an undergraduate student at Stanford, uh, uh, an astronomer called Michael Shara, who is at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Um, and some of their colleagues used the Hubble telescope to locate 135 nova outbursts in the M87 galaxy, which has this this jet um, many thousands of light years long. Uh, the galaxy itself is 54 million light years away from Earth, at the heart of the nearest galaxy cluster, cluster the one that we call Virgo. Uh, now what they did was use the data from Hubble to identify uh, all of these nova explosions and then plot their positions in the galaxy, very much like one of those 3D maps that you see in Star Wars. And uh, Sharpe says, you know, it was striking to the eye that the nova appeared to be preferentially aligned with the jet, which is to say there were more novae along the line of the jet than you would expect. Now, as good scientists, we know that correlation is not causation, but it's still worth a look. So what they did then, was divide the galaxy into 10 equal sectors. And they found that when they did that, 25 blasts occurred along the jet, whereas only 10 to 16 occurred in each of the galaxy's other sectors. The chance that this is just a, a fluke of statistics is, according to people who can actually do the maths, of whom I am not one. Um, they reckon the chance that this is a fluke is about 0.3%. So it's really unlikely that this is a coincidence. The likely is there is actually some causation here. Uh, now, uh, the astronomer Massimo Della ville um, who is an astronomer at the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics in Naples, uh, was not involved in the study but has reviewed the results. It, and it is pretty clear that if this data is correct, and there is no reason to see that it is not, if those objects are nova, the jet has to be responsible for this somehow. It has to be involved. Now, uh, De La Valle uh, says that perhaps what the jet is doing is pushing interstellar gas onto the white dwarf stars in the systems that are going nova, increasing the amount of material that accumulates on the star's surface, and that that might cause the white dwarfs to explode more frequently than they otherwise would, which could result in those stars exploding more frequently than they otherwise would, which would account for the excess of um, nova along the line of the jet. But the jet itself, as at least as far as we can tell from the observations that we currently have, doesn't appear to be supplying enough gas or enough radiation to explain this. So essentially, it looks like the jet's to blame, but we don't know why and we don't know how. Again, plot a Star Trek, anybody, if this hasn't been written as an episode already, it needs to be. Whatever is causing the Novae to be more prevalent along that line, Something is going on either that we simply do not understand or that we simply cannot see. So to resolve this, what they're hoping to do, uh, and let's be honest, they're astronomers, they were hoping to get this anyway. They're hoping to get more time on the Hubble telescope uh, and perhaps to examine other galaxies that are similar to M87 to see whether they also have jets, which also seem to be correlated with the same kind of supernova, uh, sorry, nova, they're not supernova, it's nova um, eruptions. Hopefully from there, they can start to figure something out. But I find this utterly fascinating, and I love that we have the instruments now to actually look so deep and in such detail at what's going on, not even in our galaxy, but in other galaxies hundreds of light years away is is just it's mind-blowing to me. It's what I love about astronomy. This is 54 million light years from Earth. So the light that we are observing, that the, the Navy that we are observing, happened 54 million years ago. Which means, okay, the dinosaurs had, were already gone by then, but still, it's been a minute. And while we're on the subject of things that are happening in space, or have happened in space, that I am mind-blow, die! It's time we talked about Bennu, folks. This is not particularly news now. Um, The return of the material from the asteroid Bennu uh, happened a couple of weeks ago while I was away and you were listening to repeat. No, but still, what we are starting to get now is that scientists are beginning to get to study this stuff. They've got about 250 grams of dust and rocks, that have been returned to earth from the the, ast- the asteroid, I keep calling it an astronaut, not quite sure why, anyway, about 250 grams, quarter of, kilo- of a kilogram of dust and rock from the asteroid Bennu, now on earth. This is material from beyond the orbit of the moon, this is the, the furthest out stuff that we've ever had on earth. And there's, there are huge, huge expectations. For this. Because it's the first asteroid material that we've ever been able to study directly, because it's the first samples that we've had from beyond the orbit of the Moon, actually on Earth, um, this is being hailed as a new era of exploration and a new era of sample science, which is in fact exactly what Mackenzie Leistrup, the director of the Goddard Space Flight Center uh, in, in the US said during a live streaming event on October the 11th, which I did watch. Um, The mission isn't a new one. I mean, it it takes a long time to get stuff from asteroids. Uh, It was actually the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which I'm not going to tell you what OSIRIS-REx actually stands for. It is the most torturous name ever given to anything. And I return you to my often-made point that scientists should not be allowed to give things names. Um, But it was launched seven years ago uh, to rendezvous with Bennu. Uh, which is a near-Earth asteroid. It's not that far away as these things go, but it's old. Um, and so, Starist Rex actually touched down on Venno back in 2020. Uh, we did report it then, but people might have been distracted. Scooped up um, a sample about the size of a coffee cup, sealed it away in a, a container, you know, a sterile container, uh, and brought it back home, which it, which it, it finally did. Um, back at the end of September, uh, Osiris Rex itself uh, is still up there, uh, now renamed Osiris Apex, uh, and is headed off on its next mission, uh, going into the orbit around uh, another near Earth asteroid called uh, Apophis. Uh, so I approve of this. This is very thrifty. This is recycling a spacecraft into a new mission. The capsule containing the Bennu sample was parachuted down into a desert landing site in Utah, prompting many, many jokes about the Andromeda Strain, uh, which I know is a very old movie and an even older book. Uh, But we're all geeks here, we get the reference. Fortunately, at least as far as we know, uh, there were no deadly alien viruses attached to any of this stuff, and we're not all about to die in a massive plague, which is great because repeats are so boring, aren't they? Uh, In all seriousness, uh, they've got this stuff, they're now beginning to look at the composition of the material that they have found, and what they have found is that much of what they've got is made up of water-bearing clay minerals. Um, Now, the importance of this, I I kind of think is perhaps self-evident, but just in case it isn't, um, Dante Loretta of the University of Arizona in Tucson, who is the lead scientist on the Osiris Rex mission, says, look, this is the reason the Earth is the habitable world it is, with oceans and lakes and rivers and rain and stuff like that. Uh, that's not a direct quote, uh, but that's because clay minerals, like the one that we are now seeing, returning from the asteroid Bennu, landed on Earth for between four and four and a half billion years ago and brought the water that makes our world habitable. Other grains of material from this sample contain other elements that are common on earth, including carbon and iron, Um, as well as plate-like sulfur structures that may have been crucial for jump-starting life. Now, I am no biologist, so I have no idea why such minerals might have been crucial for the jump-starting of life, but I am prepared to take their word for it. So, the study continues, what's basically going to happen at this stage is that about a quarter of the Bennu sample is going to be distributed around uh, the various Cyrus-Rex scientists who are part of the mission um, for analysis. The rest will be divided up uh, around various scientists from around the globe, with a portion being set aside in a sterile environment for future study. Because there may be things that we can do in the future that we cannot do now, and having a, a pristine sample is you know potentially quite valuable. We still have pretty samples of moon rock for the same reason. So, the idea is that, that Venu and the samples from Venu will give us an insight into what was going on at the birth of the solar system. This is some of the oldest material in the solar system, this is the stuff that we are made of. So, um, it's kind of cool and we could learn a huge amount from it. So we'll keep you informed as the study continues. And I guess we'll wrap space there for this week. And with that, we will get stuck into some comics reviews because it's about time I did some. Uh, So we're going to start with an issue one that's out this week, and that is the sensational She-Hulk, issue one. Now, you may be thinking, hang on a minute, you recommended She-Hulk issue one before and not that long ago, and you'd be right. What Marvel have done is what they often do, which is start the whole thing again from issue one, apparently for the sake of it. I think they think that this is a way of getting new readers to jump on board. I'm not convinced that it does. Usually, at least, what they would do is start again from issue one when they got a new creative team in. But in fact, the same creative team is continuing, as really is the the story from the She-Hawk run that's literally just finished. Uh, We still have words by Rainbow Rowell. We still have um, imagery by uh, Andres uh, Gianoli, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. Some brilliant, brilliant colours by Dee Kunliff, and letters by uh, VCs Joe Caramanga, who is, you know, kind of prolific. It's a really good package. I think the thing that I'm pleased about, if they must start with issue one again, they've given her her adjective back. She's always been, you know, in the way that the the, the original Hulk is the incredible Hulk, Shulky has always been the sensational She-Hawk, and the last run of She-Hawk was just called she hulk Now, starting again with issue one, we are dealing with the sensational she hulk once again, and she deserves this adjective because she is sensational. Uh, The main story is continuing her relationship with Jack of Hearts. You don't actually need to have read the previous run in order to follow this, so that's fine. Uh, it's a, it's as good a jumping on point for Shulky as there's ever been, really. Uh there's also a neat little backup story involving her getting some appointments mixed up, uh, which is by Jessica Gow, who was the showrunner of the She-Hawk series on Disney Plus, which was not as popular as it should have been, in my view. Uh it's it's really good. And uh, we've still got the fantastic covers by the amazing Jen Bartel. Uh, And so, yeah, this is going to be a pick of the week over at Dusty's. I I really do love this character and this team producing this character. It's great, great stuff. Uh, So I recommend that to you. It's out now. Um, Issue one, as Marvel tends to do, is more expensive than normal. It's 480 uh, at Destination Venus or 450 if you pre-order it. But I assure you, it is worth every single penny. And then, just to prove that I'm not only in this for the money, our second pick uh, for this week, our second comics recommendation, is something that I can't sell you because I'm sold out. Uh, and I'm sold out because it's great. And that is the new miniseries, Hack Slash, Back to School. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Hexlash, Cassie Heck is a young one who fights monsters. Uh, there's a, a real Buffy vibe about this, and Hackslash did start around about the same time that Buffy was starting. Uh, the creator, Tim Seeley, who co-created this with uh, Stefano Caselli, made a point of never watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer because he knew there was a similar vibe. Uh, I actually have grown to prefer Slash to Buffy. That's just me. I think this particular version of Hackslash I very much prefer uh, to Buffy uh, because it's by Zoe Thorogood, because it's her exquisite writing, and because it is her just incredible art. But uh, There has been a tendency with Backslash in the past to um, kind of, of have, you know, quite a lot of flesh on display. Shall we? Put it that way, uh, quite anatomically, uh, not necessarily entirely accurate portrayals of Cassie Hack. That's not how. That's not how Zoe Thorogood draws anybody. Zoe Thoroughgood draws. It's not that she doesn't do sexy well. Uh, she she can still create that that frisson, I guess, uh, but. She draws things in a way that don't feel explosive and don't feel Overly done uh, I, I, just, You'll need to come and have a look At the artwork I think I, it's, it's not that she pulls her punches And in fact it's very very gory On social media she actually has made Some jokes about how she did her normal line art and then just sprayed it with blood um, It is very gory and I would Also point out um, The language is not safe for work uh, Cassie Hack has a bit of a potty mouth this is not for children i would not have said um it is however cracking it really is an exceptional read uh i'm not going to get into the story uh because that's i I don't want to spoil it i want you to read it and i do not want to spoil this for you And to that end, although we are sold out of issue one, at the moment we are trying to get more copies in. It is not sold out at distributor level. So we are hoping to have more copies of issue one. So, you know, if you're passing, do feel free to drop in and check and see if we have one. I I am keeping my personal copy in the store uh, so that people can at least have a look at it and see what I'm talking about. Uh, But that copy, I regret to tell you, is not for sale, which in many ways is actually my ultimate recommendation. If if it's so good that I won't sell you my last copy because I want it, that's that's the highest praise I've got, I think. So anyway, that's uh, that's heck slash Back to School, written and drawn by the brilliant, brilliant Zoe Thorogood. Uh, that is actually three seventy five on Destination Beans, or three fifty if you ordered it in advance, and it's worth every flipping penny I can tell you. Okay, so we will leave that there. Uh, Those are our two recommendations for this week. Uh, We will be back next week with some more recommendations, but for now it is time to move on. And I really to have a jingle for this, I should probably do a better one. So what else have we got for you? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you asked because we have something to plug. I don't know whether it counts as geeky and frankly, I don't care. It's something that I want to support and I think you'll enjoy. Uh, you may well remember the film Shakespeare in Love. Uh, it stars uh, a bloke whose name I can't remember uh, and Gwyneth Paltrow as um, somebody. And it tells the story of how Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, a play which began life, at least as far as this movie's concerned, as Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. It's a very funny film, a very funny screenplay by Tom Stoppard, and it is actually surprisingly accurate. It has the the English teacher's seal of approval. Uh, One of the plot points in the play is that towards the end of the film, um, Romeo and Juliet is being performed with Shakespeare in the role of Romeo and Gwyneth Paltrow's character in the role of Juliet. And the story of the film is that these two people want to be together, but can't. And they're trying to have a conversation, but they can't because they never end up on the same side of the stage as each other. It's very cleverly done. And the way that Romeo and Juliet is portrayed as being performed in Shakespeare's time is pretty accurate. So it's it's a good, good movie, and why it's also an old movie, why am I telling you this? Well. I'm telling you this because it was turned into a stage play by the playwright Lee Hall. A a stage play that was originally produced in the West End, no less, uh, by Disney Theatrical Productions and Sonia Friedman Productions. Uh, That's not happening here. But a production of Shakespeare in Love, the play, is being put... On at Harrogate Theatre on the 19th to the 21st of October this year. So if you're listening to this the day it goes out, the first night is tonight. Uh, But you can still see it uh, this weekend uh, at Harrogate Theatre. Uh, The show starts at 7.30pm, although there is a a Saturday afternoon matinee at 2.30pm if you prefer to go to see a play during the day. Uh, You can get your tickets from uh, the box office, uh, which you can contact on 01423 502 116. Now, this is not an advert for the Harrogate Theatre, but I think one of the things that we need to push a little bit more uh, as a, a show about geekiness is theatre. I, I reviewed a couple of weeks ago the um, yippee ki one-man show that was on at Harrogate Theatre as part of the Harrogate Comedy Festival. And I, it got me to thinking that I used to go to the theatre quite a lot, and going to the theatre is quite a geeky thing to do. It's all about sitting and absorbing a story, but not not quite in the same way as you do when you go to a cinema. It's it's different than that. It, it's a it's a very it's a different experience, and I I think it's one that that too few people gets to have regularly. And when you have a great local theatre, like the Harrogate Theatre, I I think we should probably support it more than we do. Uh, This particular production of Shakespeare in Love is being performed by the Harrogate Dramatic Society, which is a non-professional organisation. I don't like to call it amateur dramatics. They are far more professional than that makes that sound. Uh, But they're not professional in the sense that they are not getting paid. In terms of the performance itself, they are very professional indeed. So again, I commend this to you. I will certainly be trying to go. Um, I, I My problem always is time, but I'm hoping to go on and catch it on its last night on the 21st of October. So I may see you there. That's would be to look forward to if you ever needed a reason to go to the theatre. Surely, the fact that I might be in the stores. No, Okay, then i just go to say it because it's brilliant, then. That's probably better. I suppose I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, um, although I have no direct connection with the Harrogate Dramatic Society uh, or this production of Shakespearean Love, uh, the guy playing Romeo, a guy called Niall at Shack, uh, is an old customer of ours. So, you know, we're biased a little. So, anyway, that's Shakespearean Love. We hope to see you there. Now, um, I seem to have worked through my split a little faster than I anticipated, and I find myself with about three minutes that I was not expecting to have. So although we are going to do a massive amount of chat about Thought Bubble next week, I, I can shoehorn a little bit of comment in now. I've spoken before at length about how wonderful Thought Bubble is and how lucky we are to have such a world-class event happening in Harrogate. Most places this size could not possibly support an event of this magnitude, and this is not hyperbole. This is a world-class event. People will be coming from all over the world, both as exhibitors, as guests, and also as as just regular punters. There will be people who have come from the US and uh, all across Europe and Canada, and I think I'm, I'm at least one person came all the way from Australia last year just to go to Thought Bubble. It's it's got that kind of draw, that kind of pull. So we'll talk a lot about Thought Bubble next week. I think this week I just I've just got a couple of minutes. I just want to tell you what Thought Bubble is, because people don't always understand what a comic convention means. A lot of things that call themselves comic conventions are essentially Geek cons. Um, And they are, you know, lots of stuff about movies, um, lots of actors signing autographs, that kind of thing. That's not Thought Bubble. Thoughts Bubble is a comic con that concentrates entirely on comics. So you will see people in cosplay. Lots of people will come dressed as their favourite characters. uh, And I love to see it. What you won't see are You know, the person who was the the third Dalek in episode six of Doctor Who. You won't meet that guy. He won't be there. It's nothing to do with TV or movies. It's all about comics. What you will find there are writers and artists and people who make comics. And what you will experience while you're there is... Just an immense amount of creativity and joy. It is honestly the, the most joyful weekend of my year. I love Thought Bubble so much. It also got a really positive vibe. Whoever you are, however you identify, you are welcome at Thought Bubble. N- nobody is excluded. Everybody's accepted. It is the safest space around. And I don't mean that in a it's all right on and everybody's woke. Heavy air quotes whenever I use that word. Honestly, hate the word woke. Um, It's not that. It's just no one's there for an argument. No one's there to do politics. Everyone's there to make art and to appreciate art and to talk about art and to write and to tell stories and to talk about writing and telling stories. Essentially, it is the ultimate mix of joy and enthusiasm. And what could possibly be better than that? We'll have more on that next week, uh, along with all the usual stuff, and hopefully I won't actually be recording it in the cinema, so you won't have quite so much background noise and the sound quality will be better. But for now, we are inexplicably out of time. So we'll see you next week. Until we do, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else. And above all else, stay geeky, folks. We'll see you soon.